Well, today we are wrapping up our series called Grow. And for the past several weeks, we have been talking about faith and why your faith and my faith is not just important to us, but really why it's so incredibly important to our Heavenly Father and why it is that he wants to see our faith grow. And all along, I plan to end this series by talking about the tension between God in pain and God in suffering and God in grief and how we reconcile those things. But then George Floyd happened. And before him, Amud Abiri and Breonna Taylor and far, far, far too many more. And so today, as we wrap up this series, I want to shift the focus of our discussion just a little bit to include the subject of injustice, because injustice is simply another expression of pain and suffering. And the tension of God and pain and the tension of God and injustice is perhaps one of the most important and difficult topics to wrestle with when it comes to having faith that grows. But as we're going to discover today, this subject is incredibly important, not only to us, it's especially important to our Heavenly Father. If this is your first time with us, I'm Joe, and it's great to meet you. If there's anything that we can do to help you or your family right now, just please let us know. We would love to help however we can. Now, the problem of pain and injustice, the problem of pain and suffering, again, it's perhaps the biggest obstacle that, that each of us faces, not only to having a growing faith in God, but possibly just to simply even maintaining faith in God. More people, you know this, have stepped back from God because of their inability to reconcile a good and loving God with the pain that they see in our world more than any other topic. And when you broaden that to include the idea of injustice, I mean, it is almost overwhelming. And see, this entire topic is a minefield for me and for us and for our church, because the truth is, if we were a far right-leaning church or a far left-leaning church, this subject would, in fact, actually be very easy to talk about, because I would just simply be preaching to the choir. But thankfully, we're not that kind of church. I've been to plenty of those kinds of churches where everyone pretty much agrees on everything and everyone who doesn't agree with the truth is they just don't matter, right? But that's not who you are and that's not who we are. And I could not be more proud that I get to be your pastor because as uncomfortable as this tension can be at times, the truth is you know this, right? The truth is rarely found in the extremes. You know that. The truth is, is found in the circles and the categories and the groups where they overlap. Because, see, that's also where problems get solved and not simply debated. But it can be so uncomfortable, it's just easier to simply retreat to the echo chamber of extremes where everyone agrees but nothing is accomplished. And so with that, let's jump in. The problem with reconciling the issues of injustice in our world and suffering in our world with the idea of a good and loving God, it pretty much goes like this, right? If he's good, he would. And if he could, he would. If God is good, he would get rid of all the pain, suffering, and injustice in the world. And if God could, he would get rid of all the pain, suffering, and injustice in the world. And so the problem with God is that he either lacks good or he lacks could, or perhaps the real problem is that he isn't real. Because whether it's a problem with his ability or a problem with his willingness, either way, clearly there is no good God controlling and running the universe. So there is, in fact, no God. Now, here's a big question, and this is something you really need to, to wrestle to the ground. I mean, why do we assume if there is God, God must be good and just? There's a presupposition in there, isn't there? If there's a God, God must be just and God must be good. And since bad things happen and unjust things happen, 
there must not be God or God's not being God or God's not behaving properly. And see, the truth is, this is a really important question. This is a very important question for every single one of us as Americans, but not only for us Americans. I mean, a number of you watching right now are in Canada. Some of you are watching in England and Denmark and the Czech Republic. And see, the truth is, this is an important question for all of us who live in the West. Where did we get the idea in the first place that God must be good and God must be just? Because to leverage goodness and justice to argue against God is to assume that God is good and God is just. But says who? I mean, you? Me? If we just made that up, we can't hold that against God. Right? The pharaohs, they didn't believe that the gods were good and just. The Romans didn't believe that the gods were good and just. The Greeks didn't believe that the gods were good and just. And so why do we assume? Why do we assume if there is God, God must be good and just? And see, the answer is somebody told us that, right? That's why we believe that. Probably when you were a child, somebody told you that God is great and God is good. Somebody told you that. But here's the real question. Where did they get that? And see, this is a big deal because they did not get that by observing nature. Nature is not good and nature is not just and nature is not fair. And they did not get that from the ancient gods. In fact, the reason people believe in the ancient gods was because of evil and injustice. They, they looked at evil and injustice in the world and they tried to come up with an explanation. And so they just blamed it on the gods, right? Injustice and evil in the world was in fact evidence of the ancient gods. And so here's the thing you have to wrestle with. If you walked away from faith because of injustice and the pain that you see or that you have personally experienced in this world, I am sure, I mean, I am absolutely sure that if I heard your story, right, I would say to you, okay, who could blame you? So I'm, I'm not blaming you. I am in no way minimizing what you've experienced. If you stepped away from God or you feel yourself stepping away from God and, and your big problem or one of your big problems is all the injustice and suffering in the world, I, I completely get that. I, I just want you to consider that maybe, maybe you stepped away unnecessarily because the justice and dignity for all God that we all want to believe exists the justice and the dignity for all God was, in fact, introduced to the world by Jesus. Before Jesus, there were local gods who loved the local people. And truthfully, they didn't even really love the local people. They, they just kind of played with the local people. They somewhat protected the local people if the local people would make you know, the appropriate sacrifice to them. And until Jesus came along, there was no concept of a God who loved everybody on the planet. And see, we're so used to hearing this, it doesn't even affect us anymore. But whoever told you that God is, is a God who should treat everyone fairly and that everybody has dignity, whether they know it or not, that idea was introduced to the world through Jesus. And see, here's the amazing thing. It was introduced by Jesus at a time when there was neither justice nor dignity for anybody. And into that world stepped Jesus who claimed that every single person had dignity. That God loved every single person in the world equally. And here's maybe the most amazing thing of all. Jesus' first century followers who paid dearly for their faith, who were treated incredibly unjustly. It was Jesus' first century followers who embraced. They, they embraced that God was good and just even though they lived in a culture that was characterized by injustice. Now, how in the world did they do that? And see, let me just say this. If you left your faith 
over the issue of injustice and suffering, please pay attention to what I'm about to say. If the God that Jesus introduced us to had been so fragile as to be able to be argued out of existence based on injustice in the world, then that God would have never made it out of the first century. Maybe there was something you weren't told. Maybe there's something that you missed. In fact, this is precisely why the Apostle John, after spending three years of his life with Jesus, would write these words. This is found in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, right? He's talking to other followers of Jesus. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another. Now, why would we love one another? Because it's the nice Judean thing to do? Because we need to be civil? No, they didn't think that way back then. Then why? Well, dear friends, let us love one another. Why? For love comes from God. Don't you mean the gods? No, not the gods, not the God of a single nation. No, John says love finds its source in the God. Right? This was a staggering, like, what in the world idea are you communicating, John? And see, John is writing this at a time when he and his friends' lives are at risk and they are being treated very unjustly for simply communicating this idea that love one another for love comes from God. He goes on and he says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. See, if you were brought up believing that God is love and there's a loving God, or maybe you're not a religious person at all, and so you just kind of think to yourself, okay, I just believe in a loving God, I just believe in a loving God, you need to know, right? That idea is not original with you. It's not original with the person that told you that. Instead, it was introduced to the world by Jesus at a time of extraordinary injustice. This is where the God of love came from as well as our basis of justice, because our basis of justice is predicated on the idea that every single person has inherent dignity. And again, I said this earlier, but I'm going to repeat it. This is not natural, right? If we exclude God from the conversation and just go with what's natural, we will not arrive at this conclusion because nature is not just. In fact, nature is extraordinarily unjust. Many of you will remember Stephen Hawking. He passed away in 2018. He said this, The terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of naturalistic selection. And natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means we've arrived here because of our aggression. Spreading out may be the only thing that saves us from ourselves. I am convinced that humans need to leave earth. In other words, he's saying, listen, if we don't split up, we will eventually annihilate ourselves. Now, why would he say that? Because of weapons of mass destruction? No. Because as someone who deeply, deeply believes in natural selection and who understands the nature of natural selection and who understands that nature is not just, that natural selection is in fact survival of the fittest, that regardless of what we think, And regardless of what we value, at the end of the day, according to someone who deeply believes in nature and what is natural, we will eventually destroy ourselves. Because natural law, natural selection, knows nothing of justice or love or dignity. Now, the implication of all this is staggering because you can turn this whole thing around and you can reverse it and you can say this. There is, in fact, a way to get rid of all the injustice in the world. 
And the way to rid the world of injustice is to just rid the world of God, at least the God that Jesus reveals to us. Because when that God is gone, injustice leaves with him because justice leaves with him. And what would be left would be nature, which knows neither justice or injustice. Because once there's no objective standard for, for justice, injustice ceases to exist. And do you know what we're left with? When we have no objective standard for justice, we're left with my justice and your justice. We're left with Nazi justice and street justice and nature's justice and mob justice and rich justice and power justice. You'll have your justice and I'll have mine. We have nothing and we have no one to appeal to when God walks out the door. When we reject God because of injustice in the world, we don't solve injustice. We lose the definition of justice. Now, at this point, the obvious question that's just kind of, you know, begging to be asked is simply, you know, is there a solution to all this? Does Jesus have a solution to injustice? And the answer is yes. Yes. But see, we don't like it because it makes us uncomfortable. And this is one of those uncomfortable true things because Jesus, who said God is love, also taught that thankfully God is just. And see, here's the part that makes us uncomfortable, but Jesus could not have been any more clear. In the future, there will be the very thing that we accuse God of neglecting, justice for all. But there is no justice without judgment. And see, this is when we're tempted to run for cover and say, okay, I don't want to believe in a judgmental God. I don't want to believe in judgment. You know, I don't want a judgmental God. And do you know why we resist the whole idea of judgment? Do you know why we resist the, the idea of God being a God of any kind of judgment? It's because in our hearts and in my heart, we know we fall short, right? My resistance to this idea exposes my hypocrisy because the truth is, I want justice for you. But see, I want mercy for me. I want justice for you. I want you to pay for everything you've done to me, everything you've done to my kids, everything you've done to my family. I want you to pay for everything you've done to my friends. But when I stand before God, I want to be able to state my case. And for God to go, okay, now that I've heard the whole story, right, you get a pass, right? Come on, let's be honest. The whole idea that, that God is a God of justice, it makes us nervous. But we're not nervous for the people who have been unjust for us, are we? No, who are we nervous for? I'm nervous for me. Right? And see, this is why the gospel is so amazing. This is why you can't help but look up and think, okay, nobody would have made this up. This is when the message of the gospel becomes so powerful and so overwhelming because when God saw the state of this world that he created, when God saw that we all fell short, right? Come on, we know it. I mean, we fall short of our own standards. If there's a God, you know we fall short of God's standards. Into a world that fell short, God did not send a judge. He sent a savior. Jesus himself tells us, he says, for I have not come to judge the world, although the world needs judging. I did not come to judge the world, even though the world is full of evil. I did not come to judge the world, even though my nation and my people are being treated with extraordinary injustice. I did not come to judge the world, Jesus says, but to save the world. And see, this is why, listen, this is why if you stepped away from Jesus, you need to reconsider because you want an objective standard of justice and nobody gave it to us like Jesus and God, right? This is the power of the gospel. God in his infinite grace, before he chose to judge, he provided a way 
to save. And see, besides, before you just write this whole thing off, if anyone had a reason to stop believing in God because of injustice, it was Jesus. Because the man who taught us that all people have inherent value and are worth dying for was executed by the very people he died for, right? I mean, think about that. He was executed by the very race he came to save. Evil and injustice are not arguments against the existence of God. They are evidence. They are reminders that as followers of Jesus, we have always believed that God entered into this very evil, very unjust world through Jesus to save that it's at the cross of Jesus where God's love and God's justice meet. And as followers of Jesus, we have always believed that while we are here in this world, we're going to continue to push back on evil. We're going to continue to push back on injustice. We're going to continue to push back against racism. In fact, not only are we going to push against racism, we're going to be anti-racism. That we need to be anti-racist for the very same reason we need to be pro-life. Because it's not okay to be just not okay with babies being killed. Just like it's not okay to just be not okay with black people being killed. That is what love requires of me, and that is what love requires of us. And so we're gonna to continue to rescue innocent children, and we're gonna to continue to fight injustice and racism and listen, I know this is kind of a, a big, bold statement to make, but I figured, okay, why stop now? Just think about this. If you genuinely care about injustice, which I believe you do, I, I, I do. If you genuinely care about justice, you should want what Jesus said to be true. Because the evil and injustice in this world, they are nagging reminders that something is wrong. Something is very, very wrong. And somehow, Somehow we know. And Jesus' church is here to be a part of the solution, not the rhetoric. That is our path forward. One of the things that we forget is that at the birth of the church 2,000 years ago, there was extraordinary, off-the-charts racial division and racial tension. And it wasn't simply between two groups. It was between five groups. Right? There were Jewish people who looked down on everyone. There were Gentiles who thought the Jews thought they were better than everybody else. There were slaves who were actual slaves. There was a group called free men who used to be slaves, but they somehow bought, earned, or were gifted their way out of slavery. And the slaves looked down on the free men, and the free men were never respected by the other citizens in society, even though they were no longer slaves and had been given citizenship. And then there were the women who had absolutely no rights at all. And all five of these groups, they began to follow Jesus, and they all showed up at church. And there were owners and masters and used to be slaves and slaves. There were women and Jews and Gentiles. And somehow, somehow they managed to work through and move beyond incredible levels of division at every level of society, financially, culturally, ethnically, and politically. Scripture even records how bad it was. And I want you to hear this because I believe this is what gives us hope. Because if you look around our nation and our state or our community and especially in our world, you can just see it all and think, okay, there's just no way. But 2,000 years ago, it was the church of Jesus that was, solution, that was the solution to all of this. Because, and don't miss this, 
they realized that there was something about following Jesus that gave them more in common with each other than there was dividing them. And see, the perfect example of this was Peter. Because 15 years after the resurrection, 15 years after seeing Jesus risen from the dead, 15 years after personally experiencing Pentecost, I mean, think about that. 15 years later, Peter still doesn't like Gentiles. He still thinks they're inferior. It was a major racial divide. He really thought they were inferior. inferior. He thought, okay, God loves them, but you know what? He doesn't love them as much as he loves me because I'm Jewish, right? That's what Peter thought. And again, the church has been going for 15 years at this point. And so one day, God interrupts Peter as he's praying. This is in Acts chapter 10. And he tells Peter, I want you to go into the home of a Gentile and I want you to tell a family about Jesus. And Peter's response to God was, okay, God, I've never been in a Gentile's house. You know I don't do that. I don't go in their home. They don't come in my home, right? I mean, this is Peter saying this to God. But eventually Peter gives in. He goes up the coast to Caesarea, and it turns out that the house isn't just the home of a Gentile. It's the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And this is what scripture records happened. I want you to hear this to illustrate just how deeply the church was divided. And the fact that 2,000 years ago, these first followers of Jesus, they found a way to move beyond their own division. And that's why we're here today. It's why today there are followers of Jesus who are black and white and every other color in between because, and again, I can't emphasize this enough, for the first 15 years of the church, red and yellow, black and white, we were not all precious in the first century's sight because they did not believe that Jesus loved all the little children of the world. They did not believe that. Race was a huge, huge, huge issue. And so Peter, he goes up the coast. He's about to go into the home of Cornelius, and in Acts chapter 10, verse 27, Peter, he goes inside and he finds a large gathering of people, right? Cornelius has his family there, he's invited his friends and his neighbors, and they're all in the house of this pretty prominent member of the community. And listen to what Peter says to all of them out loud. He says to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, right? Think about this. I know you invited me to your house, but my people don't go into your kind of people's homes. I mean, that's how Peter starts the conversation. That's how bad it was. Peter acknowledged it because everybody knew it. And then listen to what he goes on to say. It gets even worse. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. In other words, up until this moment, Peter is saying, I thought of you as impure and I thought of you as unclean. But God has shown me. But God has shown me. In other words, God has done something on the inside of me and now I see differently than I did before. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God had to show Peter. And finally, finally Peter got it. God had to expose something that was inside of Peter for Peter to even understand what was inside of himself. And then something amazing happened. About five years after this event, in Acts chapter 15, 
there's a big meeting in Jerusalem with Peter and Jesus' younger brother James and the other leaders of the church. They're all there in Jerusalem. And in this gathering, it's Peter who stands up. And in this meeting, it's Peter who champions the full inclusion of Gentiles as well as women and slaves and freemen into the church. And that day, the church officially walked away from a way of thinking that would have divided Jews and Gentiles forever. And none of us would be here today if it had not been for our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago who realized there's something bigger than Judaism. There's something bigger than being a Roman. There's something bigger than being a freeman. There's something more important than being a man or a woman, that through Jesus, God has done something unique in our world that is bigger than anything that divides us. And if you read Acts chapter 15, what you discover is that each of the groups, they make not only theological and religious concessions, but each of the groups made cultural concessions as well. Now, how did they do that? They found common ground. They spent more energy loving what they had in common with each other than fighting and arguing about what was different. The right to life for everyone, dignity for everyone, equality for everyone. They put the words of the prophet Micah into practice to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. They acted on the words of the apostle Paul and they stood in solidarity with each other when he said that when one part of the body suffers, the entire body suffers with it. This past week, I listened to an interview with Dr. Tony Evans. This, he's Priscilla Schreier's father. He's a pastor and a leader that I highly respect in the church, and I deeply appreciate what he had to say. He described a, a very recent personal experience that he had with racism when he was invited to speak to a group of golfers at their golf club. And upon his arrival, he learned that the place to which he had been invited to speak would not allow him to join. And so his ability was welcomed, but not his person. And he went on to say this, there is a serious call from Jesus to step out to the front lines and to put our theology on visible display. It is not enough to just believe the right things. It is critical to display those things in the right way. A visible demonstration of the kingdom of God in relationship to the issue of race. When we're willing to do this, it will have a large and visible impact. This will set a different tone for a divine reset. A kingdom reset. Jesus is so clear. We are all one. Our unity in Jesus is our best witness to the world about Jesus. Let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, I pray for every single one of us. Father, I pray right now that you do in me and that you do in every person who is watching today exactly what it is that you did in Peter. That, that you change what is inside of me, not what's inside of them, but Father, that you change what is inside of me. Father, show me what needs to change in me. And Father, hear these words. I repent for my sin. I repent for looking down on my fellow brothers and sisters 
who are all made in your image. And Father, we ask for all of us, for all of us, Father, that you would heal the hurt that we have in our heart, the hurt that we have because of what we have suffered personally and the hurt that we have because of what we've seen happening to our brothers and sisters in our community. Father, for the, the people who are hurting, this world is filled with hurt right now. And Father, I pray for those of us who are followers of Jesus that you would use us to lead the way. We know that we first have to confess our sin for you, to you. And then, Father, we can ask for you not only to heal us, but Father, also to revive us. Father, I pray that you would revive your kingdom. I pray that you would revive your church. Father, I pray for our leaders. I pray for our nation. I pray for everyone who stands on the side of peace. That Jesus, that we would submit ourselves to you and to your word. And Heavenly Father, it is so easy for us to feel like, okay, the, this just isn't my world, right? This isn't my world. And that may be true, Father, we know that. But Father, it's somebody's world. And so that means we need to hear and we need to listen. And Father, that is something that every single one of us can do. You know that, Father, you listen to every single one of us. And so help us to love the world around us the way that you have loved us through Jesus by hearing us and loving us, forgiving us, and standing with us in all ways and in all times. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.